Welcome to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast. I'm your host, Troy Hammond. And on today's episode, we're chatting with Mark Clare from Clare Capital. Startups in New Zealand have had a phenomenal three or four years. So many acquisitions, so many exits. We've seen a lot of money filter through the community. And Mark Clare from Clare Capital has been integral in part of that. He's someone that I actually helped, I, I engaged with when I was going through a process. And so I wanted to get him on the podcast and talk about what the hell does an investment banker do? How can they help us? How can we better be better prepared for an M&A process? And he's a lovely guy, so enjoy it. Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast, brought to you by Talent Army. One of our biggest challenges in our industry, like with tech, is the sort of diversity one. Yeah. And we've been doing um, a bunch of work talking to sort of various women and, you know, um, minorities coming through and sort of saying, well, you know, what's the perception of investment banking? And it's terrible. And, <laughs> the and, are recruiting him, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we were, um, and our last hire was a fantastic woman, Laura, from... Um, who came from one of the one of the big four um, yeah. consulting firms, and she originally was. She said, "I looked at it and she said, I don't want to do that." And and luckily, um, some people talked to her and said, "No, no, they're they're different to yeah. to the to the standard investment bank." And she came in, and I mean, I I had a one on one with her yesterday, just sort of chatting through a bunch of things, and she was like, "Oh yeah, anything I can do on to help some of that stuff through." And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, we've." Yeah, we need to tell more stories yeah. about what it's like, and we've just gone through a big rebranding thing with the Ocean Design team, and yeah, beautiful website, man. Yeah, thank you. It's um, yeah, our previous website um, uh, was was something ten years ago, um, but yeah, it's it's been really good talking and hearing people yeah have say a couple of positive things around it. So that's good. Yeah. yeah so I mean, yeah, we're just we're trying to say we're different and. Because, yeah, there's a perception load investment banking is a certain thing. And, again, tr- we're trying to do some of that differently. Yeah, man. And, that, and that's evident, man, because I hear the exact same things about Clare Capital as I hope that people hear about Talent Army in that, like, when I started asking some questions around this space, I got, yeah, man, go and speak to Clare Capital. They, they get it. They're different, right? And that's, for me... In an industry like tech, especially yeah. right, where you're, if you're an investment banker, recruiter, lawyer, and you walk in with your suit, you know people are like, oh, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. <laughs> and so most of our clients don't even wear shoes, let alone a suit, right? And yeah. so, well, the the classic story I tell is like we've done a bunch of work um, with um, Mott and Michael from yeah. you know back from Trade Me and that, and I turned up uh, originally, you know, a decade ago. Um, we started in suits and would um, would would put the jeans on and things like that if we were seeing some of the tech clients. Yeah. And I turned up at Trade Me in a suit, and Mod met me in the reception area, and he just looked at me and the look of almost <laughs> disgust on his face was like, it was like, Mark, I'm going to let you in this one time, but if you wear that again, there is no way you're coming back in here. And at the same time, we started doing some work with Zero and people like that, and and again pretty quickly became instead of, you know, we had jeans to in the office to wear down to certain clients, got to the stage where there's, you know, there was one suit hanging up there. <laughs> and, and 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 we've reached a stage now where, yeah, I mean, I can't, I, 
I wore a suit to see a somebody had come in from Japan a few years ago, but that's literally the last time I can think yeah. of doing that stuff. Where a lot of our a lot of our competitors are still in, or a lot of the investment banking things still sees themselves that way. Yeah, man. I remember having a a coffee with like one of the founders of um, Google, like in the states, long, long time ago, right? And I said, hey, so I'm I'm thinking about starting up this new recruitment company in New Zealand, and you know, like. Um, from your perspective, can you give me any advice? And I was in a $3,000 suit with beautiful cufflinks and a nice watch on right? and like th- wearing my best gear to sit down with this guy. And he was like, you get rid of that fucking suit thing, man. <laughs> and I was like, dude, this is my best, these yeah, are my yeah. best clothes. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, but you don't need a suit. You yeah. know, like your, your target market, you know, wears hoodies and, you know, they wear this and that. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, like I'm – and, and he goes, no, you're you. And I said – but my whole industry wears suits. Yeah. And he said, well, be the person, you know, to break the norm. And so I wrote a blog that day and I was like, I'm no longer, my company's no longer going to wear suits and blah, blah, blah. And we got laughed at by the industry. Everyone's like, oh, this fucking try yeah. hard renegade. And now no one wears suits, right? Yeah. And so we can just be ourselves. Yeah, well, I mean, we got we got quite a lot of, I mean, um, yeah, I had certain people come through and go, oh, Mark, you guys, you're looking, you're all looking you know that's not how we do things, and it was sort of like, and exactly as you were saying, we're, we're now seeing. You know, I, I I bumped into one of the um, one of the team from KPMG the other morning. He's oh no, I just I'm so pleased we're out of suits and things like that. And I was like, yeah, when when the when the big four accounting guys are into are out of suits and yeah, that, like, there's not just yeah, yeah, things have changed. I do feel for the working style guys and that around it, and go, man, your business model must have changed quite a bit with just yeah. Yeah, man. So so when I think about like Claire Capital and these companies, you know, like what why is it different why do we hear that they're different right and i think for me i think it's because from my knowledge and understanding of you and your team you don't wear the mask you know that is corporate bullshit business like you are yourselves and you resonate with your clients because they authentically believe you guys you know is that fair to say do you think or yeah look um i mean the one thing i would i mean we do a bunch of stuff differently to some of the other investment banks um but at a core, um, like my background is um, working for the likes of other investment banks such as Cameron Partners and yeah. places like that. And the work and the approach that we take is still grounded in, you know, the how we solve problems is the structured corporate finance sort of bottom-up thinking that you see, you would see in a place like Cameron Partners is, you know, very much has influenced a lot of the, the same approach that we take there. Yeah. But the thing we talk about is it's structured thinking with an edge. And part of that is exactly that bit of sort of dropping that sort of that corporate mask. Yeah. Um, I know you know like sort of, um, JD from, yeah. from Raygun, I think he's he's a guest coming on in the not too distant future and things like that. Um, you know, JD tells a funny story where he asked me a question at one stage and I sent him an XKCD um cartoon as <laughs> as my answer and he was sort of like um he was like yeah i've got the right guy here he's my, yeah, man. He's my man on some of the stuff <laughs> yeah um but one of the um even one of the big four um one of the big four um asked us because um they had a client and they came to us and said oh look we've got this problem and they and i said well hold on you know you're doing what we're doing and he said well i just really not sure how to answer um, how to deal with um, this particular problem. And so we had a bit of a look at some of the stuff and I ended up sitting down with the the other advisor who was in a suit and their client who was a tech business. 
Um, and the guy said, well, how do we think about this? And I quoted an Eminem song around the solution. And the, the guy from the Big Four was like, what are you doing? And, and it was the sort of um, – and the, and the client was like, no, I get it. And what I was – you know, the argument was the – you know, part of what I was doing was trying to find a way to, to bring that structured thinking but in a way lid – the client could sort of turn around and go, okay, yeah, I can see where some of that fits, where what some of that song? fits together. Um, what was the song? It was, um, oh, what was the one around it? Was, God, I'm trying to, I, Lose I, I Yourself? It wasn't Lose Yourself. Um, it's one, uh, I am, uh, whatever you say I am, because oh, yeah. otherwise why would I say I am? Oh, and yeah. um, it's the lyric. And that was the bit I came to because he was, at that stage, where it was a it, again, it was one of those incredibly geeky revenue recognition issues around yeah. um, revenues. And at that stage, there were there was there was sort of dispute between um, how to recognise the revenue, and um, and there were different pieces in the literature around it. And I said, well, it's so unknown at the moment because he was like he was trying to negotiate something with a with a private equity fund. And yeah. I said, just say it is because if you say it is why isn't it type thing and he was like i get it okay. and he ended up doing that and got the right result so um so yeah i mean yes we're still i wouldn't want people to think that we're not we're flying like a lot of our work is very based on structured yeah. theoretical um strong frameworks within sort of academic literature but we're definitely trying to find a way to layer some of the some of that that sort of edge to to some of it to help you know, to help make some of it a lot more relatable and things like that. Awesome. So let's rewind then because you haven't always been Claire Capital. Like nope. where did Mark Claire start out? Did he start out wanting to be an investment banker? Um, I, finance was finance was always what I wanted to do. Yep. Um, again, um, my grandfather had been uh, the managing director of the old National Bank um, uh, here in uh, in Wellington and worked in London. Um, again, it's one of those, you know, I recognise I come from a big, yeah. you know, element of privilege there. So hearing people talk about, you know, their, they being the first person that had been to university or something. Um, my grandfather, who was born in 1906, has a, or had a master's degree from Otago University. I've got a master's degree, so I'm only catching up with my, you know, with yeah. my grandfather there around it. So finance was always... Um, was always something I was I was interested in, wanted to wanted to be part of. And if you turn around to and go back and talk to a twenty year old version of myself, and if I, he could look forward and see what I'm doing now, twenty year old Mark Claire would be very very happy with yeah. you know I'm fifty two now, you know would be very happy with where I've ended up and and the work that we're doing. Yeah. And so, what was your first job out of uni then? So, yeah, um, first job out of university. Um, at the time, I really wanted to be doing work in finance, but it was early nineties, and the the um, the stock market crash had still yeah. been a, a thing around it. And um, I got some good advice from from somebody which said, "Look, um, go and do." An accounting degree and have that accounting base because things are going to be tough for a period of time and you'll never regret having that accounting degree. And I got an accounting degree with a bunch of finance and my I got a my first job out of university was working in audit for KPMG. Yeah. And good training ground though, right? Yeah, fantastic training ground. Look, KPMG is a wonderful organisation um, and deal with it 
still today. But yeah. um, but yeah, it's safe to say the 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 counting of the beans and audit and things was was the last place and that I should have that I should have been and and yeah. what we should have been doing. So um, pretty quickly worked out that wasn't where I wanted to be. But um, but yeah, it's great great trading place. A good mate of mine said the exact same thing. He started at KPMG in audit and risk. Uh, Rob Marshall, and yeah. he um, unfortunately didn't get out of it. <laughs> so he's like now got his own Grant Thornton affiliated technology risk and assurance business. But yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, the comment that I say is, um, look, there are there are three. Um, when I'm looking for people, and w- and what is the basis of my career? There's there's almost three parts, and one of those is absolutely being able to do debits and credits. Yeah. In our game, being able to look at financial statements and understand that molecular level of how a company's numbers look like is absolutely vital. Yeah. So the thing I say is, first thing I'm looking for is debits and credits, yeah. which is what I got from that stage. The second stage that I'm looking for is you know forward-looking numbers, which is where I quite quickly worked out I was far... Better. more interested and better at looking forward rather than looking back yeah. and then being structured in the thinking. And if you can do those three things, that's, that's so a key part. So for the layman that doesn't understand financial yep. modelling, what is forward thinking? Yeah, I mean, so um, the difference there is if you look at accounting, accounting is all about, you know, what did we do? You know, what was the financial results for, you know, the last year or working through some of the pieces there? Um, And that's really important. You've got to have, you know, you've got to be able to, people have got to be able to go, well, what actually happened and what was the, what was the, uh, what was the, um, you know, what was the result of that from a, from a revenue, profitability, cash perspective? Um, But that's really important to capture that. Um, but when it comes to sort of more of the more uncertain problem-solving things, it's more about what happens moving forward. Yeah. And one of the first pieces of work we did at Clear Capital really early on, about 2014, um, Zero came to us and said, look, we've got this financial model, which is all about what Zero's financial performance would look like moving forward. Um, it's not as, you know, it's been built over time. We want to we put together a really robust you know, thing that we can use to plan. You know, a talent army would have something similar, or yeah. maybe not. Where you go, this is where, this is what, well, this is what we expect to happen over the next couple of years, and this is what the, um, this is what the expenses and revenues and that will look like, and to be able to project cash requirements and things like that yeah. around it. So, part of that is about being able to then look forward and say, what do we expect to happen here on some of yeah. the things there around it, and that's got a bunch of implications for, you know when people are trying to value companies and things like that, it's not about what you've historically done, it's about what you're going to do next and how valuable, you know, what those cash flows are all about. Go get that 10 times revenue, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lesson, unfortunately, in that lid. Um, Again, we'll probably come back to that on some of the stuff, but yes. And um, one of the first pieces of work and analysis we actually put out in the public domain um, uh, you know, 10 years ago um, under the Clear Capital brand was a piece we did um, around zero, and one of the one of the drivers of that is you know probably similar to um, yourself as to why you started this podcast. We I was sitting in the back of taxis and talking to people, and a whole bunch of people turned around and said, you know, oh that zero man, that's a Ponzi scheme. They're losing money and things. And in corporate finance, there's um, 
the the basis of value in corporate finance, the thing called a discounted cash flow model. And I won't get into all the detail there, but a key part of that is one of the things we say is losses are fine as long as value is being created. Yeah. And what that means is you can lose money now in the short term if you're going to um, if you're building a big business which is going to throw off a lot of cash down the track. And that was pretty obvious what Rod and the, yeah. the Zero team were doing. They were investing a lot of money as a bit of a land grab to get as many customers on. And when you looked at it, if they stopped growing, man, they were, you know, they were going to throw off a lot of money. And we wrote a piece of an, um, analysis, and Rowan Simpson always laughs about this because the first line in it was, zero is not a Ponzi scheme. And, <laughs> and I know, you know with a $20 billion, or I don't, even, I don't know what zero's market cap is today, um, but yeah, I mean, at the time, people were going, oh, you know, it's never going to make money. It's never going to be, yeah. it's never going to be a valuable company. And again, understanding, you know, losses of fine as long as value is created is is part of that forward looking side yeah. of things to go. Well, yeah, where does that fit? Which does come back to you know your your SaaS revenue multiple one there of going. Well, if I've got a SaaS business, it's yeah. worth it's worth ten times revenue, isn't it? No, it's not. But yeah, it, it, yeah. It, well, as my team would say, it depends. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, or hockey stick growth, right? Like we, we're just like we we know that if we build that revenue with hockey stick growth, we're going to get x x return. But yeah, yeah, potentially. But again, there's a bunch of things that go into that mm. as to you know how big is that market. Secondly, what level of scale of revenues you got now? Because if you got nothing now and you go, oh, it's going to be huge down the track. Yeah, yeah you've got a problem. Um, bullshit in our numbers. Yeah, well, but also, I mean, how. You know, one of the things we talk about is the unit economics behind it. And yep. that was, you know, when we first started talking to Zero, Zero weren't putting out their gross margins and some of the pieces around it. Um, and it was interesting to see them realise they needed to tell that story, Lid. Not only were they growing fast, but they were growing fast with real SaaS software unit economics, which yep. is, you know, does the business actually make money? And when you strip everything back, will that will that actually fit there? And a lot of businesses we see or come to us go, oh yeah, I'm a SaaS business, but they don't actually have, they they don't have the proper um, yeah. underlying financials which actually justify that. Yeah. And then your next part is, you know, to justify that 10 times or what does that um, revenue multiple look like, it really comes down to how fast you're growing. Yeah. So, you know, the, and there's a big difference between if you're growing at two or 300% versus, you know, growing at 20% year on year. I mean, yeah, one one of those is worth 10 times and the other is not. Yeah, yeah. and the, the recruitment companies definitely aren't, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> no, for, for, for what it's worth, neither of us are investment banks. And, yeah. you know, we sort of sit there and, uh, yeah, it's a, um, yeah, we have we have some different, yeah, we're services businesses as well. Yeah. So understand that. Yeah, yeah well, you were invaluable when I had someone approach me for an yeah. acquisition and you know, your advice was fantastic. And you were, um, you, you didn't, Ask from any money. You just you just gave me your phone number and said anytime you need a call, give me a call. And like for me, that was just like a very admirable mate. So thank you. No, no. Look, it's one of the um, it's one of the things around it. Um, one of the things in in setting up Clear Capital, um, I wanted all the way along. We've tried to give more value, Lynn we've necessarily, you know, captured or in yeah. in the terms. And we have quite a lot of people come to us. Like you did, where you had a range, you you know, you you'd been approached by someone and you weren't quite sure how to think about some of the stuff. And we're we're always the comment we'll say is we'll always take a call yeah. and help people to you know to work out 
you know, whether that's something they want to move forward with or not. And we'll never, we'll never charge for that. Um, yeah. And and again, there are times when people go, well, actually, hold on, this is getting real. Yeah, I need, I need some help. Yeah, we'll we'll come on board and and assist with that. But we we're always happy to do that. And I mean, even one of the comments we make to to people because one of the mistakes we're seeing a lot of the tech companies make when credible people come through is, you know, New Zealanders have that DIY mentality. They yeah. go, and and if you're in Europe or North America, um, and if somebody approaches a company, they will typically get advice in quite quickly. And one of the things we've said to a bunch of people is, just don't be afraid of using our name, yeah. even if it's just a, if they go, have you got an advisor? I always go, yeah, just even if you haven't talked to me, I'm happy for you to sort of say, yeah, we've got, you know, Clear Capital do some advice for us and then to pick up the phone to me and have have that conversation because if nothing else, if you turn around to a party that reaches out, if it's a serious, credible party and you go, have you got an advisor? A lot of them think, oh, they'll think that's a bad thing. That, to be honest, no, most of the time it's, you know, probably with some of the same stuff with the recruitment thing. If they know they're dealing with an experienced counterparty, that actually makes a lot of the process easier. So, I mean, yeah, we're always happy to, you know, do those types of things and that around it. Yeah, awesome, man. So, so two questions. Um, so, Firstly, what does an investment sure. bank do for people that are listening to this? And yep. then the second part of that is, like, if to go back to your career, is that was the strategy for you in terms of how you crafted your career to get to where you are now? Yeah. So, but fundamentally, like, for a lot of people that are hearing this now, going, yeah, no, totally. What do you do? Yeah. Um. So, investment banking is one of the most misunderstood things around it because people have a perception of you know pinstripe suits you know uh, you know aggressive white males you know doing all sorts of things and is it people you know behind a trading screen or you know what what does some stuff work and there are a number of different parts that that actually encompass investment banking and there's a number of different ways around it so um if you look at somebody like a a, a jardin um, or a Forsyth Bar or a Craig's Investment Partners, they're much more, they do a range of everything, which yep. covers everything from um, advisory work, which is similar to what we do, to um, to broking, you know, typically, um, typically wholesale broking, um, which is trading shares for yep. big financial institutions, to asset management, to to retail, um, to retail funds management. So you can see it covers a whole lot of the stuff there. Um, an investment banker like myself, we work purely down in the advisory side of things. So my firm at Clear Capital, we do three main things. So the first of which is mergers and acquisitions. Yep. So um, that is helping companies and well, predominantly companies to buy and sell other companies. We work predominantly on the sell side, which is helping people that are selling a business to be acquired yep. by someone there. Now we work on that for at for at the big end of town. So we've done, you know, we ran Zero's internal M and A program for a period of time. Um, we've sold for like, you know, you had Kristen on from who'd been the CEO of Hatch. We yep. sold Hatch for Kiwi Wealth. Yeah. Um, you know, we we do work at that. You know, we've done some work for likes of NZX and some of those bigger parties there. But we're particularly well known for helping entrepreneurial companies. Um, Lid are going through that a sale process there to 
usually with a big party to um, to to assist them through that process. Examples of that are, you know, we've recently just assisted the Dot Loves Data team with their acquisition by ANZ. We helped the Homes.co.nz team be bought by TradeMe. Yeah. You had Mickey on, who was the chairman of Star Now. We helped Star Now with the with the sale to um, Backstage. So yeah. a big part of that is um, is is where the people um, lead will manage the way through that process, and I'm and I and my team are the people which will typically negotiate the deal as well. So not a brokerage. Right? So people are listening to this to think, oh, he can. If I approach him, he can help me find my company a buyer. But you're engaging once there've been some interest is shown to them. No, we will go. We will be that. I, the broker analogy is one which we we don't love, but it is yeah. it's well understood. Um, yeah, there are you know using Hatch as an example, um, Kiwi Wealth got us in to um, to look at what the strategic options looked like for Hatch. So yeah. there was a bunch of work done around you know what Hatch could do from raising capital strategic partnerships was there a sale option there and once they worked out they wanted um, the shareholders of Hatch decided you know it wasn't strategic for um, Kiwi Wealth and the Kiwi Group Holdings component there around it yeah we do then go out and find the buyers so yeah. we will run a structured process to help people find those buyers to sort of come in. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, cool. So that's I normally say that merge and acquisition stuff is seventy five percent of what mm-hmm. we do, um, but recently over the last couple of years with just the amount of tech M and A that's been going on, it's been sort of more like ninety ninety five percent. Yeah, we've had a good run, right? Yeah, it's been a really crazy good run. Yeah. Um, so the second thing we do is what we call corporate finance advisory. Um, I talked about we built that financial model for zero. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we built a financial model for zero. We built um, PushPay's financial model pre-IPO. Um, done a lot of work for Flex for Plexure and Sequent, helping them with financial modelling and metrics to how that stuff moves forward. Um, that encompasses like <laughs> people come to us a lot and say, "I need you to. I'm, I, I want you to tell me what my business is worth." And yeah. we're like, "Well, you know, we don't typically do that, but that's." You know that is that's part of that corporate finance advisory type stuff as well. Mm-hmm. That used to be ten to fifteen percent of what we did, but we're literally because there's been so much M and A activity, we've done virtually none. That we've been pushing a lot of that work away. Yeah. And the other area we do a little bit of work in is the capital raising side of things. So we help the likes of Apply ID, which is a know your customer AML play, yeah. um, raise eight million dollars from. Uh, from Octopus Ventures in the UK about a year ago. Um, we got a couple of, of capital raising mandates, but it's not at that early stage. It tends to be more people that are, that are looking to raise sort of substantial private equity rounds around it. And we only do, we do a bit of that. We've got a couple of mandates going through there at the moment. Um, yeah. So yeah, think mergers and acquisitions, buying and selling of companies, advisory on, you know, complicated financial modeling and uh and metrics and a bit of capital raising work and that's 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 the core of what we do awesome awesome so then did you did you strategically go through your career then to get here now did you is it decisions that you made earlier by leaving the audit team Mm. did that get you here uh yeah um again i've been listening to a range of your podcast interviews and um one of the fascinating things has been hearing about people's journeys through that yeah um i was 
pretty strategic yeah. on what I wanted. Um, uh, leaving leaving KPMG, I, I knew I wanted to be doing something very similar to what I'm doing here. Um, I was playing um, some uh, football at the top level here in New Zealand for a period of time. So in my 20s, there was a bunch of that. And I yeah. I also got to spend a bunch of time living in North America. and like um, top level of football, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I played um, yeah, I played sort of national league level and I, I have 1A international for New Zealand. So I played it – was a, it was a serious – it was a serious thing for me for a period of time, yeah. um, but then worked out that that I wasn't going to make the the key steps, and it was time to. How was, was that? To, how was that? The moment of realization that hey, this is not going to be my forever life. Yeah, it's. I, I actually knew Lid pretty early on. Like, I, don't get me wrong, I loved it. I, the yeah. football was. It's it's still something I'm I'm deeply passionate about. We've got we got a big TV in the um, on the wall in the in the office, and we had the we had the Champions League on this morning, watching yeah. the, the whole the whole team watching some of the stuff. So like, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love it. Um, but I knew you know as a new being a New Zealander, it wasn't you know there wasn't the pathway. Yeah. And when I was playing, it was the sort of early you know early to mid nineties. And I mean, this is pre-super rugby. There wasn't almost any professional sport in New Zealand, and I, I kind of knew that there was there was there was going to be something next, and and I wanted it to be yeah you know, I wanted it to be pretty much what I'm doing now. Yeah. So when I I spent some time overseas, and when I was in London, um, I I basically targeted working for a couple of the big investment banks over there. Yeah. Um, so I ended up doing a whole lot of work for Citigroup yeah. um, when I was in London. Um, they were keen for me to stay in London or to go to New York. Mm-hmm. And my then girlfriend, now wife, and I did a trip to New York to check some of that out. But we we really wanted to come back to New Zealand. And, see, you know, I'd, I'd been away for three or four years and I, I wanted to see if there was a... I, I could see... I knew people, that New Zealanders, that had stayed in London for a long period of time and I could, I could see that path, but... You know, I love this country. And yeah, yeah well, I wanted to come back. So, which was a big decision, man, because like I recruited IT recruitment for you know Canary Wharf there, and it was, man, it's a good life. Yeah, you know, like we we were living in a we were living in a one bedroom place in Notting Hill. My wife was working for an advertising. My girlfriend then was working for an advertising agency. I was working for an investment bank. We had the resources to be able to travel. We were traveling all the time trips to Africa and yeah it was it was a really it was a really good life and but, yeah but, but not even just like the like the affluence of the life that you can live but more like even the you know like the deals that you opportunities of that you you're working on right compared to New Zealand like the exposure of stuff that you can see there is fantastic right I look completely and yeah yes yeah look there's some amazing yeah. you know those big markets um yeah, there's some amazing stuff in them, and yeah, I was fortunate. I had a, I had a choice to go. I could have stayed, yeah. um, but I I don't regret the choice. To come, I, yeah, mm. I don't regret that choice to come back. Um, but I've got some good friends that went did the other path where they stayed, and um, yeah, it's uh, choices aren't bad either yeah, way, right? Yeah. yeah. No, no, good on you for bringing that skills and knowledge back, right? And making the decision to 
be in your home country, right? Yeah. Um, and look, and, and what happened on that pathway, um, I came back and I did an MBA and I, I'd worked out um, some of the MBA stuff can get a bad name on some of the things around it. But I knew, again, I was, I was actually, I was, I was really strategic in what I wanted yeah. from some of the stuff there. And I came back and did it full time. And the incredible thing that came out of it was um, it, I, I started it in late 99, early 2000. And that was when the original web 1.0.coms were all blowing up. Yeah. And you could, you know, people were joking that it was, you know, the, from a recruitment point of view, it was, it was B2B, back to banking, B2C, back to consulting, rather than, the, rather than some of the tech stuff there. But as you sat there and looked at it, and because I was not in a job, I was a, I was doing the degree full time. Yeah. You looked at some of the stuff that was happening with the tech side of things, and it was it was incredibly obvious that um, that the future was going to be online, and yeah. that was one of the things you know, you know, in the early yeah you know, twenty years ago now, you know, if I hadn't had that experience on the thing there too, and particularly looking at some of the tech stuff, I don't know whether. I would have I would have recognised how important the tech stuff was going to yeah. be. Yeah, and so much so because you actively worked and founded some businesses, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd been I've done I've done a couple of startups. Um, <clears throat> I had the um, and again was one of the um, I I came out of the MBA and worked for um, Sir Rob Cameron at Cameron Partners, yeah. um, which was a fan, again fantastic experience. And again, I pushed myself into a couple of the tech deals that were happening there. Yeah. Um, got involved in a couple of startups there. Um, ended up um, one of, shutting one of them down when we couldn't raise the capital, but that introduced me to Jenny Morell, and Jenny went, look, I'm not going to give you, who was the VC at Number 8 Ventures at that stage, she said, we're not going to give you the capital, but do you want to come and do you want to come and do some work here with us? So I ended up working with, with Jenny on some of the tech stuff, and I, I, whenever I catch up with Jenny, we... She laughs and we sort of go and she goes, yeah, you're, you're now getting to do the work now with Clear Capital that I kind of wanted you to do yeah. around that. But at that stage, you know, the tech side of things was still um, was still really early. Yeah. Um, I got back into the investment banking side of things and then um, met, you know, Rowan Simpson and, you know, JD and some stuff. And we, we set up a, finan- a fintech called Value Cruncher around yeah. 2006, 2007. Um, which was an attempt to bring some of the corporate finance frameworks we used and make them more available um, in that, you know, in in that online world. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see where a whole lot of the types of tools have gone. We were, you know, we were too early, and you know, the joke I make is, you know, we created we created something for six people, and I knew four of them. Um, but it was fantastic, um, you know. We we got it. We got quite a lot of exposure in in some niche areas, and you know the Google Finance guys had me in New York. Um, Yahoo Finance had me in um, in Silicon Valley, and you know we we were early on in some stuff there. And that was you know I know what it's like as a founder to go out and you know raise money and yeah. have people tell you no, have people tell you they you know you don't have the you know you've got it wrong, and you know. And again, people, you know, do some of the stuff there, have, you know, build some of those relationships. And I've, you know, somebody like, um, so Rowan and, you know, and JD, um, JD and his team, when it was Mindscape pre-Raygun, were the, were the team that, that built 
um, the the back end of Value yeah. Cruncher. And um, again, I'm incredibly grateful for that because that process one exposed me to some people that are some of my closest friends now. Yeah. Um, but also, um, it's one of those things now as I as as founders come to me and go go oh yeah you're you're the investment banking you know thing around I go no I've been where I you are in your yeah shoes. I've I've walked in your shoes and 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 I think that is one of the things that a bunch of the people. I get some credit for um, some strict cred for for you know you've been you've been where we are around it so I can I can look people in the well, eyes. Man, I mean, wholeheartedly as a recruitment a recruitment agency recruitment consultant, I had exposure to tech startups before I'd worked in a startup, but it wasn't until that I physically worked in a startup and founded a few companies that I was able to walk in and really truly get it. You know, mm. and so you. You know the vernacular, you know the feelings, you know everything about it. And so it's obvious when someone has come from that industry, yep. when they're holding a conversation. And so, yeah, I think it's good. I just want to go back a little bit. Sure. MBA, you're taking an MBA. Would you redo it again? Yeah. And a heartbeat. Yeah. And so what did you get out of it? Because it's like we talk about this all the time, you know, like people are like, do I do it? Do I not do it? Yeah. Um, so um, here's my story as to as to um, around it. So I, when I was in London, I I basically did two key key jobs. Um, the second one was at um, working for Citigroup, which we I mentioned before. Mm. But prior to that, when I'd first come in, I did uh, I did some work for Bayer, the German yeah. um, group there, and ended up um, involved in. Some restructuring and some mergers and acquisitions work that they were doing um, in Europe, and um, I had my accounting degree um, with a bit of finance in there, and we ended up working with some consultants from Boston Consulting Group, and these guys were, you know, they were about my age, maybe a little bit older, and things like that, and we went through. Um, they took us through some of the the strategy work, and there was a bunch of game theory, um, and you know some reasonably high end structured things around it. And I was like, "Whoa, my <laughs> my my undergraduate degree is 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 out of its depth here." And I, the story I tell is, I ended up in a pub um, down um, near Richmond um, with a group of these consultants, and they taught me. Basic game theory um, with pints of beer over the um, over the thing, and I was like, "Wow, hold on!" And I and I literally said to them, "You know, where did you learn this?" And they were like, "You know, on our MBAs," which um, which was one of those ones where I went, "Okay, I'm now starting to see. I want to be doing this work, and I'm not. I'm not. um, I don't have the skill set." Lid, some of my contemporaries are. So, I mean, when I was with Citigroup, you know, we were talking about they were going to fund an MBA in the States for me. Um, but again, that was where, where I ended up and decided to come back and sort of almost control my own destiny with it. Mm-hmm. And so, doing the MBA, I didn't come into the MBA going, this is going to, I'm going to do this to radically change my life. I came into the MBA going, what I, I want some of these skills i have a undergraduate degree lid is reasonably narrow really good i can beat you up on accounting and things like that i know a bunch of finance but i need i need more mm. and i got incredibly lucky and lid um the former 
chair of um, of what's then Telecom, now Spark, was Sir Roderick Dean. Mm -hmm. And he ended up being one of the key lecturers on the... He, he was semi-retired and was going, I want to give something back. And um, in a small group setting, he was the one that taught a bunch of the financial economics things. So we got into a whole lot of the game theory... Um, again, when it came to negotiation skills, um, John Onto from Melbourne Business School came over and did a bunch of the stuff there on on some of the negotiation mm. components there. So, to a large extent, I what I was looking for was to to broaden out that skill set, and um, and the MBA delivered that. I wasn't looking for it to change my life. I knew yeah. the path I wanted to go down, but I needed to have the tools and you know I needed to to go through that process to do it and you know I have a bunch of friends and you know again from the MBA where it didn't deliver what they were looking for but in my end it it was in my late 20s I got 15 months full-time because mm. my incredibly talented wife was working for Cleminger the advertising agency mm -hmm. said I don't want to lose you for three years go and do the MBA full-time so I did which allowed me, you know, again, Plato's parable of the caves to to take myself away from a business type yeah. setting, you know, immerse myself in some of the skills like that. But I had sort of almost 10 years of experience, of work experience to lean on because I'd start, I'd seen some of the stuff in North America and in, in Europe, which then I was able to apply then. And I also could see the tech stuff coming through and then, you know, again, um, the likes of Sir Roderick Dean opened up his networks and said, you know, which areas would you like to work in? And, you know, Cameron Partners or Cameron Co. at that stage, Cameron Partners were looking for, were, were recruiting some people and, you know, and I, I, I grabbed that with the likes of Sir Roderick as a referee. And so you levelled up then? Yeah, big time. And so how do you how do you go applying these, like, techniques that you've learned in the business straight away? Do you feel confident enough to take these you know, learnings and then just go, all right, I can do this now going forward? Or do you fumble yeah. your way through? Uh, again, um, I mean, there is always, I mean, it's one of those things where I think um, part of the experience we all go through is there is always an element there where you go, um, that imposter syndrome type thing around it. And I, I think anyone that's doing something at a senior level goes through yeah. an element of that. Um, but one of the, and again, I'm incredibly grateful for my time at Cameron Partners because we went in and again, we fell back to those fundamental frameworks, be it corporate finance, but also some of the, some of the base, you know, just financial economics work. Yeah. And we were working on really, really hard real world problems and they worked. The frameworks, you know, the bottom up fundamental thinking, you know, I, the MBA was fantastic for building the base. But then I went into an environment where I basically, where we use those frameworks to solve real, real yeah. world hard problems, and they and they worked. And that was, if I look back on, you know, my my career, you know, my twenties were fantastic. But it was once I'd done the MBA, got the experience at Cameron Partners, and seen how the solutions actually worked in in the real world, mm. my career. You know, the workload we do is is solving those complicated and complex real world problems. Um, knowing, being able to fall back to those fundamental frameworks, um, yet and with the experience on top of it, the more you, I mean, the joke we say is, yeah, you know, we've seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. um, the movie is always slightly different, but 
you know, we stay within the lane of what we know and yeah, knowing and being able to apply a bunch of those frameworks, um, yeah, it, it gives you that confidence to be able to go into some things. I, I don't ever go into a room. I, I'm always confident that if I'm being asked into a room to solve a particular problem, I will always fall back to those frameworks and that structured yeah. way of doing it. And I, I, I can't think of the last time I, I, I'm happy to say I don't know at times as well, but um, for the problems we're asked to typically solve, we can fall back to those and, and, and I know we'll be, able to, we'll be able to find a pathway mm. through that. And everybody spends a bunch of time sort of going, looking for, going, oh, is there, is there, is there, where's the adult in the room to do some of the stuff there around it? One of the experiences has been getting to that stage and actually trusting that, you know, you know what you're doing and, um, and, you're, and you're confident in that, which, yeah, means that you can apply some of those things. But interestingly as well, um, End of last year, you know, I talked about we had John Onto from Melbourne Business School do the negotiation school stuff. I took my team to the um, to the Portnick Yacht Club for a day and basically ran them through a whole lot of that, you know, that negotiation skills type work. Um, I've got a scenario planning exercise, which is going to be, we're going to run in the next month or so, which again is trying, because a lot of my team are at that stage in their 20s where I was, which mm. is a very, very finance and accounting focused type thing. And I'm going, okay, how do we, how do we expand and show you um, the different skills you're going to need to be able to do this job mm. as well as you can? That's good to ever see yourself going back to the old stomping ground at school and lecturing. Part of me, I, I'm, I like the idea of it. Um, and we've, we've talked about some of the stuff, uh, you know, I, when I caught up with one of my team yesterday, I said to her, "You know, I, I'm I'm intrigued by that, but yeah, maybe, but yeah, there's too much. Yeah, so yeah. There's, there's a bit of work to do. There's yeah. a bit of stuff to do now." So, so talk me through, like, I think a lot of people that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be really curious to get an inside look at the M and A sure. sort of process. And so, talk me through. Um, so, Dom over here has a software company, you know, selling Jordans or whatever he is, right? And so um, he's been – he's been some some companies called him up and said, hey, I'm interested in a strategic partnership, yeah. you know. Um, he says, holy fuck, that's code word for they want to acquire me. Yep. I'm going to go and chat with Mark. Yep. Talk me through the process if you can at a, you know – Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, so, look, the comment um, – I mean – one of the observations, because um, a lot of people think um, every company's got an M and A, you know, somebody will buy their business, and uh, the bad news is that's not the case. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of businesses that won't ever be bought by by anyone. Um, the comment, uh, a lot of New Zealanders will go, "Oh, I've been approached by this big, um, this big strategic party." Yeah. Um, and uh, or this big competitor, and they want to look at acquiring us, but I don't think the times rights have pushed them away. And we go, no, don't. You're almost if there's a big strategic party there talking to you, we think you should you should engage yeah. with that. Start a dialogue. Start a dialogue because yeah. again, even if you don't do it now, it puts you on the radar screen around it. Um, we interestingly we break acquirers into two sets. 
So there are strategic acquirers, which are the people that are in, in your line of business. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things we're starting to see with a lot of New Zealand tech companies now is the financial acquirers. So um, there's a lot of companies and examples that are Constellation Software, Jonas Software. There are a group of financial players that have approached New Zealand companies and are constantly coming to New Zealand tech companies and almost trying to buy them. Yeah. Now, the financial buyers... Uh, the way they make money is based on by buying at a low price and and holding them where you will get, you know, if if a financial buyer comes and bangs on the door, you know, you you can probably most of the time push them away. Um, But it's when, you know, using the the sneaker software example, if, you know, one of the big, um, if one of the big retail, um, you know, retail players comes and says, yeah, we, we want what you're doing. We think you should engage with them around it. Yeah. So if somebody comes in that situation and says, okay, I've been approached by this party, um, one of the other mistakes we see a lot of New Zealand companies make is going, oh, wow, I've, they take it as a real compliment, which they absolutely should that a company's yeah. approached them. Um, but one of the things they go is, oh, well, I wouldn't want to talk to anyone else because I don't want to piss them off. And that's if, – if anyone took one thing away from this conversation is, you know, in North America, in Europe and that, if somebody approaches the only way you're going to get – um, you're going to get any upside on some of the stuff is by running a competitive process. Yeah. And the, one of the things I constantly say is no one gets what they deserve, they get what they negotiate. Yeah. And the only way you're going to negotiate, uh, be able to negotiate something there is to have multiple parties in the process. Same as my industry, right? If you if I got you a job offer from one competitor, I'd say, great, let's utilise that job offer totally. to get you three or four other offers now. Yeah. Now, a lot of New Zealand, like a lot of New Zealand companies don't do that. Yeah. Um, they they go well. I don't want to piss this party off or something like that. And you're like, you know, it's the the party coming to acquire you. It's their job to acquire yeah. you. You're being, I mean, the naive component. So, what we would say then, if somebody comes, a, a credible strategic party comes and says we want to acquire them, what we would then, if somebody comes to us, we would go, that's great, and you would start the conversation with the party there because what they will do is they'll start asking for some information Mm -hmm. and part of what you want them to do is to give them enough information to put together what's called a non-binding indicative offer Mm -hmm. right we'll give you some information and but we'll limit how much it is we'll give you only enough for you to send a signal of what the business is worth now in parallel with that we would sit down with the owners of the business and and say, who are the other parties that are credible strategic acquirers? Who who would like to acquire you and who has the financial capability to acquire you? And then you will reach out to those, we would reach out to those other parties and say, in a situation like this, we would turn around and the messaging would be, um, you know, Company X has um, received an offer from a credible strategic acquirer. Mm-hmm. We're moving forward with a process of engaging around that. The shareholders of sneaker company, sneaker software company, or whatever the company is, has always held these other. We would say has always held you in high regard. Mm-hmm. We would, we would, we would like to see if you would like to become part of this process. 
um, you know, because we would not want you to to find out that we had been acquired and we had not come and mm. had that conversation with you. And that is how you will typically in a situation like that. Because what you want is you want multiple parties on the same timeline. Because mm. one thing that often people will come to us almost too late and go, I've got this offer. How do I get another one? You're like, well, hold on. You're going to lose. You ha you haven't created a situation where there's a structured process to have everybody on the same timeline to generate that competitive tension to get a higher to get a higher price. Out of interest, is do you know any of the data on like, is what is the percentage that they'll take the first offer versus the second offer? I, I don't know. And again, a lot of the time. Um, we literally had a um, somebody sent me a note um, again because we get some of the ones around it, um, and we knew they were um, we knew um, somebody had introduced us to them and said, "Oh, you should have a conversation." And this party turned around and said, "Oh, well, you know, this private equity company came to us, and you know, and they came to us, and you know, they're going to invest in us, and then they've got a buyer for us down the track." And we were like, "We were like, and we were like, oh my god, you." You know, that's a problem because, yeah. you know, you're giving away a bunch of the value. But I think it's probably a bigger number than you would expect. Mm. Um, but in international markets, absolutely not. There are, you know, the um, US and Europe, if somebody comes, you know, people instantaneously, you know, go out and do some of the stuff there. Yeah. Um, or bring somebody, bring an advisor in to run a structured process. Um Interestingly, um, like again, we love working with entrepreneurs, um, but we do do a bunch of work for for sort of corporates, yeah. um, and the corporates are actually a hell of a lot better at that. Well, they're used to right. It's muscle memory for them versus a startup founder. It's it's muscle memory, but also you know also it's it, at times it's not as personal yeah. um, because they're sitting there going, look, it's my job to make sure I get the. Get the highest quality, you know, the highest value outcome possible, and they will come in and be more comfortable with that. Where a bunch of entrepreneurs will almost feel they need to, um, it's their job to, um, it's their job to be the person they yeah. feel they should be the one doing that. And, and do they? Do they does it, is it easy to get deal fever when you're an entrepreneur? Yeah, look, I think it is. Um, yeah. I, look, one of the things I always say is it's um, and it's one of the most um, it's one of the most um, humbling things that we we get to do is um, is to help entrepreneurs um, through through exit journeys. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the first deals we did at Clear Capital, we we helped a company called um, Met Ocean, which was a marine forecasting and hindcasting business, be acquired by the Met Service. Yeah. And um, there were a group of scientists there and they were like, oh, look, Mark, we want you to, you know, just guide us through this process. But, you know, just we'll, you, use it to one side and we'll do some of the stuff. And then by the end of it, they were like, we don't want to be in the room. Just go in and, and, yeah. and do some of the stuff there. And, um, and Peter McComb, who was the CEO there, who's an um, incredibly talented entrepreneur, um, and, you know, for years, a number of years afterwards, um, he was my go-to guy on some of the stuff. And I, a couple of times I said, look, I haven't spoken to you for a, a period of time. The, the acquisition went well and things like that. And he said, look, Mark, you know, we're always happy to talk about you because you were a key part of that journey yeah. going through that. And that's one of the, that's part of the bit why I would, I'd like to work with entrepreneurs all yeah. the time because you can do some of the stuff and, and help them through it. But there is absolutely an element of selling people's babies. 
So how do you like? Because so, so two questions here. What percentage of deals go through? Like, say, if some when your company's had an opposition opportunity for an acquisition, what percentage of them actually sell? Yeah, um, my team. Um, when they're listening to this, we've been talking about having a um, having a uh, a bingo card for for markisms that'll come <laughs> out of it. Yeah, take it off. Yeah. So so ticking off one of the ones that I would say is again is it depends. Yeah. Um, and um, it really does. Like it's it's hard to like we've got sort of firm wide yeah. numbers, um, and it's um, we do really really well in lid. You know, it's it's just over a half of the ones do actually complete. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is some of the deals lid um, you think have got the lowest chance of completing actually do, and some of the ones you go that's a no brainer don't. Yeah. So um, it's very hard to tell at times and in the deals part of where we're there for because a number of people think you know an M&A transaction is straightforward and it yeah. goes bang, 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 bang and there are a number of steps the M&A processes go through um, but there's always a bit where it goes off the off the rails and yeah. part of our job is to bring that back in and sometimes there are things that come out of left field which you can't deal with and and other times you know that you see situations where where you like there's a very low chance that's going to happen and for a bunch of reasons a, a party will be incredibly incredibly motivated to make a transaction happen on the other time which is when you you know it's like when you're doing your recruitment and somebody works out they really 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 need somebody or want somebody yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's when you're like all right we can do work here. yeah so then the reason why I ask you that question is because so I've seen a lot of founders firsthand experience where they're like oh we've got an opportunity to get the fuck out now because I'm so burnt out and so yep. tired yeah yeah this is great and then they've they're starting to spend the money in their head already. Yep. You know, they're like fantasizing about their life after exit. Um, and then unfortunately they get through a long process for the M&A yep. and then it falls over for whatever reason and then it just cripples them. Yep. You know, like they can't get back on. Yep. And so is is this something that's commonplace? Like you, That's incredibly common. Um, it's incredibly common. Um, and the yeah, the M and A process is um, is incredibly incredibly draining. And again, part of the reason why we we exist is to is to help facilitate some of that yeah. stuff through. Um, nothing is done until it's done, which I imagine is similar in, in your game on, on yeah, some yeah, of the stuff. Yeah, break points of yeah. break, right? Yeah. And so. and M and A Absolutely, that is part of it. Um, again, you know, one of the things we're always saying to people as well is um, you can't throw the keys to, you know, somebody isn't going to, it's very rare for somebody to come in and say, um, yeah, I'll buy your company and you can leave straight away, you know. <laughs> and, and You're going to be there for a while, mate. Yeah, exactly. You need to think that you're going to be there for 12 to 24 months yeah. um, around it and and typically a lot of the New Zealand tech businesses, and if, you know, again, if, if, if we were selling a talent army or something like that, yeah, you're not going to be able to get out of there. And there's likely to be a component of the transaction, the ultimate transaction value, which will be about keeping key people, retaining key staff yeah. for a period of time, but also maintaining or if you've got some big growth numbers, Actually, having um, being able to 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 show that you you can deliver 
that level of financial performance. So, you know, it's it's not, yeah. P- there's still a there's still an element of work that needs to be done there around it. Yeah. yeah. And what can like so I'm more, I'm a big advocate. Of, I also own an HR company or people and culture company, where we're trying to introduce the right people and culture. Ex- processes and experience early to yep. help people to be able to scale. And so what can companies do from an M&A lens to get better early? Yeah, I mean, um, so again, because uh, they're a client and um, they're, and we did a couple of capital raises for them and we're, I'm actually a shareholder of, um, of Raygun, using yep. Raygun as an example. And JD is um, incredibly well organised on that. Um, there's two things which are really, really important and really useful. Um, having some a, a couple of pages just which summarises what the business is, yep. you know, because a bunch of people will turn around and go, can, you know, because when people approach companies, um, often uh, people... The the founders and people within the company will go. Oh, yeah, our competitor knows all of this about us. They know our experiences. Most cases, they know absolutely the nothing. Perception, right? The, yeah, the, they have the perception, but, yeah. but even like even incredibly basic stuff, people don't get. So it's incredibly useful if if you've got almost a, a short summary, and if you're being approached by some parties to have one or two pages which says this is what we do, this is who we are, this is who owns us. Here are some high level non confidential metrics that we can we're happy to share. That's incredibly valuable. Um, but the other thing, which um, and using Raygun as an example, um, we've got um, the Raygun team actually have an initial due diligence, um, an initial due diligence set of folders in a in a Dropbox, um, which is last three financial last three years financial performance, you know, constitution, shareholders agreement, and it's they've got a group of of the materials there which they keep up to date. Um, JD will probably admit that it's probably slightly out of date at various stages, but we went through a thing with them which allowed them to have some of that base material together. Yeah. And because it, again, all entrepreneurs and that, as with materials around their company, um, often they, they haven't dotted the I's and crossed the T's with a lot of the um, DD a, stuff. A lot of the DD stuff. And look, there will be, there is always an element of you're going to have to pull a bunch of stuff together there. But if you've got some base level of information and, you know, we've got a fault, we've got a thing of sort of 10 things that they, if they've got some of the key stuff, which includes even basic things like, a, you know, standard employment contract without any names or anything like yeah. that on it, that's the type of stuff that if you're, if somebody said, look, I really want to get into some stuff, you can go, right, well, here's, here's, here's 10 things from, you know, predominantly financials and, if, and with SaaS companies, if you've got some cohort analysis and, you know, anonymatized cohort analysis yeah. and things like that, that's the type of information there that can be, can be really useful on that. Awesome. A hey, question for you. We are not in the same year coming ahead than we have been in the last mm-hmm. few years. You know, it's been really good for the NZ tech industry. Yep it's definitely going to be tougher, right? And raising money is tough at the moment. Um, potentially people were gearing for a sale, you know, yep. it's fallen off now. What advice can you give founders and startups? Yeah, I mean, we have had an amazing, uh, it's been an amazing period of time. Uh, we thought with COVID it was going to shut yeah. a bunch of stuff down. It really didn't. Um, we are still seeing, uh, like, We've got a full slate of M&A work to do for the next six months. 
So one of the things, tech is slightly different to some of the other stuff going through. You, you are right in LID on a capital raising point of view. There is, there is less stuff yeah. happening out there. And we are certainly seeing parties, um, we're in processes with look at you know the prices they are paying. We're traditionally, well, for the last period of time, it's been really good. Um, one of the things we are seeing still is um, a lot of the things we're seeing involve private equity out of Europe and Asia. Um, and with portfolio companies where, where a private equity fund in New York has got a New York-based company um, and they're going, we have capital for you to go and buy things. Everything here in North America looks expensive, but Australia and New Zealand still looks cheap. Yeah. So we are still seeing a lot of those types of transactions sort of still pushing through. Um, but yeah, it's we expect it's going it's going to be tougher yeah. um, over that next period of time. Um, but again, if you've got strategic parties coming, if a using your sneaker software example type yeah. thing, if if the big granddaddy sneaker software company comes and knocks on the door, um, yeah, you should. We still think you should be having that conversation. Yeah. around it because yeah i mean there are there are some of the pieces there deals will likely get harder to do and there is definitely people will be looking at 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 price points and things like that but there is still a lot of global capital looking for a home and credit to the new zealand entrepreneurs particularly in that sort of SaaS and software space the the reputation globally of new zealand tech like it's it's really 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 high we're yeah. talking we're talking to big global Fortune 500 companies and they know about New Zealand and they know about the quality of stuff that's being built down here. 100% agree and the same same that I, I'm experiencing. So we work with big global tech companies and they, like just in passing comments now, they're like, holy shit, you know, that X company or that Y company or or the company that's been acquired that now has a Kiwi person mm. sitting on a VP role globally that yeah. they're like, holy fuck, this guy's good or this lady's good. Yeah, I mean, what the story I tell is I was on a call with a with a you know you know literally one of the fifty biggest software companies in in the world, and on a call they were looking at buying a New Zealand company, and um, we did at the end of the video. Um, the guy said, "Oh, Mark, can you hang out for a minute?" And they the M and A team in Silicon Valley said, "Look." This one's not for us for these reasons, um, but you know this is what we're looking for. We just are seeing so much great stuff come. You know, I don't know what you're doing down there, but there's so much great yeah. stuff coming out. We want to see everything out of New Zealand that fits these sort of criteria. And we're like, whoa, you know, and yeah, it's big, big names, sort of, you know, wanting to understand what the option sets are there around it. Yeah, which is cool, and and a massive compliment to the ecosystem that's been built here in New Zealand. Because, you know, the we hear people come to us and go, "Oh, what help could the government do? What could everybody do around here?" We're like, just stay out of everyone's way because you know what's being built out. People are doing it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think that's because we just have to go out and get? customers day like straight away like we don't have the luxury of raising such big amounts of money that we have to find something that's working and go after it yeah look i think that's part of it um you know serge van damme and i've had the conversation about you know exactly why is b2b SaaS so good um yeah. look, we don't have that big consumer market where you know we can we can experiment with stuff so we you know we need to go out and do some of the things there um, but the likes of zero and push pay and you know the sequence and that have shown 
people there's a there's a playbook here we know how to do mm. um we still have a view lid we are far better at building product and selling it and you know there's still you know if we if we had the sales the sales functions are not quite where the where the where the product development functions are within some of the New Zealand companies but I mean that's still improving yeah um, but yeah I, I I think I think that element of you know I think we're good at we're good at some of the stuff and 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 the world's taking notice awesome mate so advice from you then to summarize would be get in touch with people like yourself at clear capital early to yep. you know once if something happens um, you can walk them through the process you yep. can help them um, entertain those conversations we are always we'll always have a confidential free no obligation chat with anyone if somebody's facing up to a um, a commercial transaction be it a somebody's offered them capital or there's a there's a there's a credible merger and acquisition conversation we'll always that first conversation like confidential no obligation come and have that chat um yeah we'll we'll try and give some guidance there and go yeah we can help you here or if not or if we or if we think there's a problem there or something like that we'll we'll do that so yeah. always happy always happy to have that conversation and i mean you know personally you know that's that's you know you called up and sort of said hey this great. is what's happening it was yeah. like i had a real weird one for you right like i had a tech company try to acquire a recruitment company and it was was yeah. i was confused yeah and and look and again you know we had we had a we had a couple of conversations type thing like that yeah. around it and we're always you know we're very very happy to do that and yeah again sometimes you know if it goes to that next stage and people go i need help to yeah. manage this through and maybe to widen that out yeah that's where that's where we that's where we then come in and help yeah, some well, stuff I, through i have to admit so i had as a guy that hadn't been through that process myself i had confidence going into a chat with an m a person mm from Harvard in Silicon Valley, you know, that I was able to go in and say, well, this is what I'm looking for. You know, yeah. and here's some information that you would not want. I'm looking for a non-binding offer yeah. that I can then go off and consider and, and yeah. take forward. So, yeah, that was, it was invaluable. I would encourage people to, to do business with you, mate. It was good. Um, how, would, how, did, like, how does the commercialness work of investment banking? Do you take your money from the sale? Yeah, I mean, um, we typically are... Typically, our remuneration structures are based on um, we don't do anything by the hour. Yeah. Um, so our remuneration structures, typically, if somebody comes to us um, and if they um, if they want us to put some materials together to help something there, we'll typically do a fixed fee component up front, which covers which basically covers just some of our costs yeah. on doing some of that. Um, if the transaction then progresses on, we'll typically um, we'll um, we'll typically charge a monthly retainer, which again is a is a fixed fee. Um, often we'll, we'll we'll yeah, it's it, we don't get rich off some of the stuff there. It's about covering some costs, yeah. and then it's a percentage of the transaction uh, yeah. for which which again it depends on some of the stuff there, but is is typically is typically in that sort of two to four percent yeah. range type thing around yeah. it. Um, and again, uh, transactions don't get completed. Yeah, we you know we are, there's only that that covering of some of those costs um, that go through in that, and that's the nature of our game. Yeah, and I think that two to four percent usually with investment makers is covered by the ex the the deal being a little bit bigger. Yeah, um, well, we would say 
I mean, there's a couple. Yeah, it's again um, we debate it like. We've just built a new website, and one of the things we talked about was actually putting a couple of case studies of where we'd, we, you know, we'd made twenty and forty times our fees for clients on yeah. negotiating outcomes and things like that. And we actually went, oh god, look, you know, we felt that was the wrong thing. That was the wrong thing to do. But yeah, there's a number of stages there, and our argument, you know, one of the things um, transactions are typically completed on what are called a cash and debt free basis. So, you know, you get to take any excess cash out, um, but you also have to pay off any debt on the yeah. deal. But one of the components there is there's a, typically a working capital calculation in there, and it's one of the most contentious parts of you know how much money should be left in the business. And we typically our fee is we more than cover our fee just by just by beating people up yeah. on some of the stuff there. But yeah, getting the um, one getting the deal done, but two, you know, we back ourselves to you know to get a higher value outcome. And you know, at times when people have come in, you know, if somebody's put an offer on the table, and we'll say, okay, we'll take if somebody's if somebody's come to us quite late where they've got an offer on the table, and we'll say, okay, well, our fee is. A percentage of whatever we raise above that, what you've already got on the table, type thing, we'll do that type of thing yeah, as nice well. And some of the stuff there, because if we're not adding value, and that's part of it, people have a tendency to go, well, you know, one getting people underestimate how hard it is to get deals actually completed. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, yeah, there is, yeah, the hard cash component of how much value we can add on some of that stuff as well. Mm. So two last questions, um, and then we'll call it. We've, I could talk for another hour, but let's let's do that. I'll fly over a beer. Um, you spend a lot of time working on other people's business. What is what does the future of Clear Capital look like? Yeah, really interesting, really interesting one. Um, again, um, we've spent some time with the big investment banks, you know, the the Jardins and Foresight Bars and things like that, and. You know, I remember having a conversation with the Jardin team where they go, you know, we think there are two ways of of doing um, of doing this. It's yeah. one to be big like us and do everything, or to be too super niche like what you're doing and focus on that. Um, we've we've gone through processes of looking at, you know, do we add an asset management arm or something like that around it? And I think you know what we're doing is really working. Um, we're we've got some great clients we're getting some great outcomes there um we're worried about taking our eye off the ball to an extent there around it and so yeah we've we've made the call to stay for the next period of time doing what we're doing um new zealand's are new zealand's are key market but we're being pulled into australia um by various things at the moment and we're doing that all from from new zealand here but you know, I, I can see us doing more work there. Um, we also, we do no work for government or anything like that. We do only commercial yeah. sort of work there around it. And doing that M&A work for, for corporates and things like that, it's, I don't, we've got a reasonably small team. I've got a, I got a team of nine um, yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I can see us adding, like we're, we're recruiting at the moment. Um, we're looking to possibly add a few more to that, but again, do I want it to be? Do I want it to be too big and be competing with the KPMGs, EYs, PWCs, Deloitte's of this world? No, that's yeah. you know I, I'm I'm happy to focus on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, folk, yeah, remain remain niche at that stage. I completely empathise with that same exact same thoughts. I am. Um, what what bingo words did we not get out, mate? 
I, I think we've got, I think we have got most of the, <laughs> well, that my team will be happy. Yeah, good to know, good to know. And then the last question that I always finish off with is, what makes you happy, mate? Yeah, um, I've, I've heard you ask that question. So, you know, um, the, there's there's three things which are the, the pieces which, uh, you know, I know what makes me happy. Um, I'm very fortunate that I've got a fantastic wife and two great kids and I love spending time with the family but also with you know the friend you know the wider friends and family but so that is that's absolutely a vital part to it there yeah um but also I do I, I know how important the work stuff is to me there and having that right having challenging work like it is important to me I, I don't um my grandfather the 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 banker with the National Bank um, retired and dropped dead on the golf course six months after he retired. And so the joke we've always made in the family is, you know, retirement's killed more people than hard work has yeah. within the family. And, you know, I actually, I really love what I'm doing and I can't, like, yes, the intensity of what I'm working at at the moment probably, you know, I'm in my early 50s, is another 10, 15 years of that, and then yeah, slowing down or some stuff. But I can't imagine ever step. I, I don't want to completely step away. Yeah. So, family, work, but also I. There's a bunch of, you know, like the football in my 20s and that. There's a bunch of things that I am passionate about. You know, and I like traveling. I like spending time. You know, free diving and doing some of the stuff there, and having that balance to get away. So if I can get that balance right of being there for the family, but having the good work and being able to do some of the stuff, that's Mark Claire and it's a happy place. Oh man, that's a that's a secret I hope to unlock completely for everyone one day. You know, yeah. trying to find that right balance. Yeah. It's the hardest thing in, the li- in my life, mate. And I, I there are there are bunches of times in my life where it's been I have I've, it's been out of balance yeah. in all three of those ways. Yeah. Um, I'm my kids are now. You know, going to his third year of university, and my daughter's in her last year at high school at Wellington East, and um, and we're 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 getting you know we're getting more free. My wife and I are getting more free time to balance that up, and I I can see I've got a good balance at the moment, and but I can see a time you know we're we're going to have the kids moving away and a bit of empty nesting and things like that. And again, my wife and I are sort of talking about okay, well, what does that mean? How does some of that fit? And how do you how do yeah. you keep that balance? I'm feeling in a good place with that balance at the moment, yeah. and probably better than I have for a long time. But yeah, you're right. There are certainly times where I haven't had it right and things like that. And you, yeah, it's I know it's a constant battle. Excellent. Mate. All right. Well, I'll let you get on with these. Rich portfolio of M&A deals that you're, you're taking forward, mate. But thank you so much for coming on and demystifying what investment banking is and stuff and for talking us through, you know, how that process works. That's, I think, that's something that people are going to find really fascinating. Cool. Look, thank you. That's been a fun chat. I'm so grateful we have people like Mark, Claire in the community and the startup ecosystem that give time that help us out and from first-hand experience Mark literally took phone calls from me at nine o'clock at night to ask him questions he does that for everyone I th- I'm thankful that he came onto the podcast he really broke down what m a does like what m a is in the industry and what investment banking does and how they can help and support us so thanks so much for coming on Mark thank you to everyone that's watching this podcast thank you to our subscribers for the people that aren't subscribing please jump on give us a follow like subscribe share it with people because we're really hoping to keep building this thing it's starting to take off now and we're able to bring people on the podcast that are just helping you more and more and so thanks for joining and thanks for watching 
podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Films.